0: Welcome to the Dublin City Public Libraries and Archive podcast. In this episode, Mr J. Kennedy Miller's very capable company of Irish players. Christopher Fitzsimon details Miller's successful Irish theatre company which toured Ireland and Britain during the period 1889 to 1906. The 14th annual Sir John T. Gilbert Commemorative Lecture was recorded in front of a live audience at Dublin City Library and Archive, Pear Street on the 24th of January, 2011. My Lord Mayor, ladies and gentlemen, in December 1891, the critic of the Irish Playgoer magazine expressed this opinion. The play, A True Son of Erin, by Mr. J. W. Whitbread at the Queen's Royal Theatre, was presented by Mr. J. Kennedy Miller's very capable company of Irish players who, each and all, seemed to know the pulse of the particular audiences invariably to be found in this theatre. During most of the 19th century, and well into the 20th, the big Dublin theatres relied exclusively on what were known as cross-channel attractions whether it was for opera, musical comedy, the latest West End plays, major productions of Shakespeare with starry names, musical variety, and even the Christmas pantomime. Indigenous productions were a rarity, though Irish acts were to be seen in some variety programmes, and Irish comedians and chorus were usually engaged for the London-produced pantos to give a bit of local colour the big dublin theatres the royal the gaiety the queen's royal theatre the empire palace later known as the olympia the tivoli and the lyric were what was known in the trade as receiving houses Mostly owned and managed by Dublin business people such as the Gunn family at the Gaiety or the Figuses of bookshop fame at the Empire Palace, but they did not produce their own shows. Dublin was simply another city on the British provincial touring circuit. What we saw this week in our theatres, Glasgow, Leeds, and Stockton upon Tees had seen last week in theirs. Yet a trawl through period copies of The Era, the weekly paper that gave details of productions on the road, shows an interesting difference between Dublin and other cities. Touring managements tended to allocate longer runs to Dublin than, for example, Manchester. This strengthens the view strongly promoted by the Hibernian press that Dublin was more appreciative of the theatre than other British cities. The French actor-producer Constant Benoit Coquelin gave seven performances at the Gaiety in 1899 of On Alternate Nights, Molière's Les Précieuses Ridicules and Le Tartuffe, and Rostand's Cyrano de Bergerac, in French, when he only gave three nights in other British uh, cities outside London. We all know the fringe theatres that developed towards the end of the 19th century in Dublin, out of which in 1904 emerged the Abbey. Several thousand books and learned magazine articles have been devoted to this phenomenon, its playwrights, its actors, its associated personalities, and its impact abroad, which was considerable in literary and artistic circles before becoming an international industry. My subject this evening is not the abbey or the grubby atelier of Camden and Capel Street, but the Dublin metropolitan or boulevard houses, with their dress circles, parterres and boxes, and especially one of these, the Queen's Royal Theatre in Brunswick Street, just a quarter of a mile from where you are now sitting. More particularly, I'm looking at one company that was based there for 17 years and produced exclusively major productions of Irish plays with Irish players. This company was known as Mr. J. Kennedy Miller's Combination, and it flourished here and on tour throughout the British Isles from 1889 until Mr. Miller's untimely death in 1906. The Queen's, as it was popularly known, was a receiving house like all the others. At the time of which I'm speaking, its lessee was Mr. J.W. Whitbread, an English entrepreneur who had settled here and rescued the Queen's from its apparently deplorable condition. The graphic, a London weekly of arts and fashion, said of the Queen's, The plays were low, the actors vile, the authors rough exceedingly. (laughs) Mr. Whitbread, by main energy, patience, wisdom, and expenditure, dragged all out of the mire. The Queen's visiting attractions were no different from those at the Gaiety or the Royal, though on a smaller scale. It was a number two house on the circuit and did not have the space to stage the most crowded dramatic and operatic productions. Typical were plays with titles like A Woman's Revenge or Lost in New York. F.B. Gilbert's Grand Opera Company was a regular visitor in Maritana, Saturnella, and the Daughter of the Regiment. Medium-sized rather than grand, I should have thought. Whitbread was an unusual manager, for he was more than a businessman. He fancied himself as a playwright, and indeed in 1886 he wrote a play called Shoulder to Shoulder, which he produced with the touring management, first in Limerick before allowing the same company to grace his own stage in Dublin. Clearly, the out-of-town opening was a precaution, Had it failed in distant limerick, it certainly would not have proceeded to the bright lights of Brunswick Street, and Mr Whitbread may have been prudently questioning his own dramatic talent. Whitbread gave his next play, The Irishman, to the touring management of Kennedy Miller, who brought it out in 1889 in London at the Elephant and Castle Theatre. Why there? The answer is quite simple. Kennedy Miller's company was rehearsing the play while performing other works on the road in England, and it was apparently deemed to be ready by the time it reached this splendid new suburban house seating 2,203 patrons and designed by the leading theatre architect of the time, Frank Matcham. A largish number of seats to be filled for a week, you will be thinking, especially for an Irish play by an unknown author. It would appear from the reviews that Kelly- Kennedy Miller's staging was particularly impressive, especially the multiple setting of castle interior, exterior, and adjacent lakeside in the final act and a spectacular visual occurrence earlier in the play when a battering ram is used to demolish a cottage from which the inhabitants are seen to be cruelly evicted. Who was this Kennedy Miller who was to have such a fruitful 17-year career as a director of Irish plays? Well, he was a Scot who claimed Irish ancestry. His first name was actually Andrew, though he never used that professionally. His initial employment was as a bit part actor and assistant stage manager. There was nothing like drama school at that time. His apprenticeship was at the Grand Theatre Glasgow. In an interview with the Irish playgoer after his own company was well established, Kennedy Miller modestly declared that his early experience had been very varied, travelling with operas, comedies, dramas, pantomimes and the band belonging to his majesty the king of siam it was typical training on the job he found himself engaged more and more frequently as acting manager we would now use the term director the person who directs the actors in rehearsal and is responsible for the interpretation and coordination of the piece. He came to Whitbread's notice when productions he'd directed visited various theatres in Dublin. It would appear that the two men, now in their enterprising thirties, saw the potential for writing and producing specifically Irish plays. The Irish melodramas of Dean and Busico were still very popular, though Boussico was no longer active on the circuit. He died in New York in 1890. As well as this, there appeared to be a distinct vogue for Irish topics on the London stage, and also indeed in the rest of Britain. Why was this? Certainly, for English theatre-goers, Ireland was near enough to be the scene of patently credible, if bizarre, incidents, but yet removed enough for these not to impinge too heavily on the tranquil minds of the bourgeois theatre-going public. Agrarian disturbance, rebellion, prison escapes, evictions, courtroom reversals, political assassination. Such things did not happen in Tunbridge (laughs) Wells. There was also for the English theatre-goer the engagingly humorous way our brave neighbours across the Irish Sea have of expressing themselves in the English language. If you could call it English, my dear, though I don't think I would... (laughs) This humorous Irish mode of speech was especially prevalent when stage characters were attempting to climb out of tricky situations, whether domestic, legal or military. Of the six stage productions that that grossed the most money in the British Isles in 1895, no less than three were on Irish topics revivals of Boussico's The shockran and The Colleen Bourne, and Buckstone's The Green Bushes. There were 160 professional theatres and music halls in Greater London, and about 380 on the provincial circuit, which included Ireland. So there was consumer partiality for Irish work and ample accommodation. Whitbread and Kennedy Miller would certainly have discussed the vexed question of English actors portraying Irish characters. This always raised the hackles of Dublin critics, from Frank Fay, who wrote acidic reviews for the United Irishman, to Joseph Holloway, who wrote sweet ones for the Freemans' Journal and the Irish Times. A company of genuine Irish actors was the obvious solution. Kennedy Miller did not produce anything as pretentious as a manifesto. That would have been more in line with the work of the Théâtre à Côté on Abbey Street. Nor was he given to expounding dramatic theories... I'm reminded of a character in John Bull's Other Island who says, disparagingly of the parish priest, what would he be doing with a the theory? <laughs> well, Kennedy Miller was not a theorist. He was a practitioner. It's clear from the few hints we have from the press that he required complete authenticity from his actors as he did from his scenic and costume designers it's also clear that he required absolute discipline the whitbread kennedy miller collaboration had begun tentatively when kennedy miller obtained the rights of the limerick originated shoulder to shoulder After that, Whitbread penned a succession of plays, mainly on patriotic themes, all of them presented by Kennedy Miller's company, and most of them opening at the Queen's in Dublin before touring across the water. Ireland was not populous enough to sustain a production on tour for more than a couple of months. Furthermore, only Dublin, Cork, Belfast, Limerick and Waterford and Wexford and Derry at a squeeze, could provide theatres with adequate stage facilities. These Kennedy Miller productions were patently not fit-up shows, though one American scholar has recently and ignorantly described them as such. The fit-up companies played in their own booths or in parish halls and latterly in provincial cinemas. Companies like Kennedy Miller's required an orchestra pit, a spacious stage, and most of all, flying facilities for the elaborate scenic effects. Some theatre historians have been confused by the arrangement between J. Kennedy Miller and J. W. Whitbread, Because most of Whitbread's plays were seen in Dublin in his own theatre, it's been erroneously uh, assumed that he directed them himself, but there is in fact a clear distinction between the house and the performing company. The Queen's received Kennedy Miller's company. It just so happened that his company contained in its repertoire an increasing number of plays by Whitbread, the manager of the Queen's. Later certainly there was a fusion of talents when in 1899 Kennedy Miller became Whitbread's deputy and took up residence in Dublin but there was no alteration in his company touring independently in Ireland and Britain for the greater part of the year. Now the notion of touring exclusively English plays in England, Scotland and Wales worked very well. Kennedy Miller mounted new productions of Boussico's The Collinborn, A Pogue, and The Chakran, Buckstone's The Green Bushes, Travers' Kathleen Mavurnin; Faulkner's Pieper Day, and Tyrone Powers' Born to Good Luck. By 1904, the list of Whitbread's plays, which Kennedy Miller produced with the same leading and supporting actors, amounted to twelve. The original two, Shoulder to Shoulder and the Irishman, then the nationalist, also known as a true son of Erin. you get the picture, then Lord Edward, initially presented in 1894 in anticipation of popular ferment leading up to the commemoration of the 98 rising. Next, Whitbread's only historical play that does not have an Irish setting, but there's a comic part for a leading Irish actor, in this case Frank Breen. It's called The Victoria Cross, a tale of daring do in India's sunny clime, which was brought out in Dublin and toured successfully. Then Theobald Wolfe Tone, hard on the enormous commercial success of Lord Edward. Next came Rory O'Moore, a weak adaptation of Lever's novel, which did not do good business. Then The Insurgent Chief, a clumsy melodrama with the Scarlet Pimpernel figure of Michael Dwyer at its centre. Very much in the same mode is another 1798 play without a famous figure uh, as in the title role, and not Whitbread's best. And then the Ulster hero, who is, of course, Henry Joy McCracken. And finally, in 1904, Sarsfield, which probably is Whitbread's best. Sarsfield opened at the Queen's in Kennedy Miller's production on the night that Yeats on Bayer Strand and Lady Gregory's spreading the news were dress rehearsing across the river at the Abbey prior to the formal opening of that house on the 27th of December 1904. It would be convenient to be able to say that the Recherche literary theatre put an end to the popular Irish melodrama, but such was not the case. Melodrama, the Irish version of which J.M. Singh generously referred to as the traditional drama of the Irish stage, it continued until it was Superseded throughout the Western world by the motion picture, which could present its high flown sentiments and exotic scenic effects much more effectively. Isn't it remarkable that not only did a commercial touring company manage to play 48 weeks of the year in large metropolitan houses throughout the United Kingdom in Irish plays, but that it also gave permanent employment to upwards of two dozen actors and technicians. The stagehands, flymen and orchestra were provided by the receiving house, as were the crowd extras who were recruited locally and rehearsed on the afternoon of the particular show in Aberdeen or Watford or wherever it happened to be. In an almost entirely freelance profession, there's nothing like the confidence occasioned by a regular pay packet to give a feeling of company solidarity. This with a regular director in rehearsal, one might argue, would create a company style. Clearly, the actors came to know one another very well indeed. How would they not, sharing cramped dressing rooms and equally cramped digs in the lanes between Brunswick Street and the river? sitting up all night on the Princess Maud out of Kingstown and waiting for LMS train connections on Sunday afternoons at Crewe or GSR connections at Limerick Junction. Some were married couples and some entered into that state when employed with the company. (laughs) Some indeed died while in service. Certainly one gathers from the reviews that there was an ensemble rather than an ad hoc feeling, more like what you'd expect to find in the Doily Cart Opera Company or in Henry Irving's celebrated troupe of Shakespearean players. After all, like the Doily Cart and Irving productions, Kennedy Miller had a particular product packaged in a particular way. What was this Irish melodrama and was it very different from any other? Well, at the time I'm speaking of, melodramatic was not used as a term of disparagement for cheap sensational effects. Later, in the theatre and cinema, it did come to be synonymous with plays or films of excessively dramatic content containing exaggerated episodes of horror, violence, or domestic strife. I suppose the term originally meant just what it suggests, music-drama. With music-drama, with music as background to the spoken passages or separating incidents or emphasizing mood, the violins, the brass, the timps, depending on the emotional pitch of the scene. In true melodrama, everything is larger than life and in these these productions assisted by the musical background. Kennedy Miller was adept at contriving For example, the action-packed and sentimental finale, as we read from reviews of his productions, rendering them credible to the theatre audience in the heightened atmosphere created. At the close of Whitbread's patriotic play Theobald Wolf Tone, our hero is about to embark from Brest for Bantry Bay in charge of a vast French fleet and army. The final words in the script take place in the camp where Tone has caught up with two spies, Rafferty and Turner who are in the pay of the English government and are intent on betraying him and his expedition betraying because they are Irish. Both spies die dishonourably in the final scene though Tone generously pleads for their lives for are they not my countrymen. Turner blames Rafferty for their capture and shoots him, while a French firing squad swiftly disposes of Turner. Wolf Tone remarks So perish all traitors. <laughs> and that is the end of the play as we read it in manuscript, but not as Kennedy Miller directed it. According to the review in the Dublin Evening Telegraph, there was an additional scene on the quayside. There was no dialogue, but the brass band of the Dublin Working Men's Club, Wellington Quay Branch, by kind permission, was on the stage playing for all it was worth, dressed in habiliments of the French army, its strains joined from below by the pit orchestra. Mr. Alfred Adams as Wolf Tone mounted the gangway of his vessel amid the waving of nautical banners and the firing off of muskets shortly to be joined by none other than the Emperor Napoleon (laughs) and his charming wife Josephine (laughs) Vive la France Vive l'Irlande Vive la Liberté Cried the crowd. (laughs) So the painted ship cast off to cheers without even the slightest hint of what what might be in store at Bantry. Bantry is not in the play. (laughs) The ship sails as the curtain falls. This is not the ship of history, but the ship of theatrical illusion. And that is what Kennedy Miller, with his company of Irish actors, musicians and scenic artists, evidently supplied, for none of it is in the script. What distinguished Irish melodrama from English and American was the covert, you may well think overt, nationalistic feeling. The lovely Irish heroine was something other than a young girl wronged, like Mariah Martin in Murder in the Red Barn or Elizabeth in East Lynn. She, the Irish heroine, was the very embodiment of Ireland, a kind of Ashling except that in these plays she was usually quite witty. The hero of Irish melodrama, if not taking the purple path to the gallows in order to assuage his country's wrongs, was at least striving, by direct or subversive means, to achieve a measure of reform. The Irish villain was far more than a stereotypical mustachio twirling toff, intent on securing the hapless beauty for his own social or sexual gratification. He was the conniving agent of an absentee landlord, or worse, an informer against those of his countrymen who were seeking justice. The servants who support their masters in Irish melodrama are, as a matter of course, aiding the national cause by clever stratagems and by means of their sharp tongues. Their use of language is far more elusive and colorful than that of any rustics I've yet come across in American or English melodrama. The actors who appear to have been most popular with audiences happen to have been those who remained with the Kennedy-Miller combination the longest. There may have been a way in which theatre-goers came along to see what their favourite player was appearing in tonight. I certainly remember a vestige of this in the 1950s at the Queen's when the Abbey Company was in residence there. People going to see what Harry Brogan was as this week, (laughs) or Eileen Crow, or Ray McAnally. The actors went in for wonderful makeup disguises, so they looked different, even if they didn't sound very different to what they had been portraying last week. And certainly the parts doled out to individual actors were inclined to be stereotyped. There was the dashing hero, the pretty heroine, the comic servant, the infamous villain, etc., etc., but often audiences were presently surprised when one of their favorites came up with something quite unexpected and accounted for him or herself very well in a different kind of part. We we'll now have a sauce for a short slideshow. Most of these pictures appear... In my book, Buffoonery and Easy Sentiment, which, I learn, was delivered from the printers today to my highly regarded publishers, the Carisfort Press, and, I'm told, will be available in the foyer in just a few minutes. (laughs) I've seen it, but I haven't opened it. Very few images of the actors in Kennedy Miller's company have survived, and most of those that have are of poor quality. Generally, Only the very famous and well-to-do like Irving and Cochlin had production pictures taken of themselves and there was no theatrical repository in this country to house such material. Fortunately, we now have the Dublin City Library and Archive gradually building up an impressive collection of theatrical memorabilia. All the following pictures, except the photograph of Kennedy Miller which is from the Irish playgoer are from the archive here in Pierce Street or Brunswick Street, if you like. The first is not a photograph, but a caricature of Frank Breen, drawn by his colleague, Iron Ireland. He's seen here as Feeney in Busico's melodrama, Aaron a Pogue, a revival of which is now, as it happened, running at the Abbey Theatre. The strange noise you may have heard was Yeats and Lady Gregory turning in their graves... at this class of buffoonery taking place in their theatre. <laughs> Frank Breen was from County Down. He played in many stock companies all over the British Isles before joining Kennedy Miller, where he was in revivals of Tyrone Power's comedy, Born to Good Luck, and he created the parts of Flynn in The Nationalist, Rafferty the Spy in Wolf Tone, Brando Byrne in The Sergeant Chief, and Niblock in The Ulster Hero. The Evening Herald said that Breen was the most interesting villain on the Irish stage. Another reporter drew attention to the fact that Breen seemed to enjoy the hisses and catcalls as tributes to his talent. Comments of this kind emphasize how much these melodramas were considered to be entertainments. The villain's present was relished. This is something recent scholars, particularly those from the New World, fail to understand. Here is Kennedy Miller's leading comic actor, James O'Brien. Were it not for J.M. Singh's visit to the Queens in 1904, O'Brien's name would be unknown to students of theatre history. Singh wrote in a magazine article that Some recent performances of the Chakran, as they were played the other day by Mr. Kennedy Miller's company, had a breadth of native humour that is now rare on the stage. Mr. James O'Brien especially put a genuine richness into his voice, and in listening to him one felt how much the modern stage has lost in substituting impersonal wit for personal humour. Singh used the term comedian in the French manner, meaning actors, les comédiens. One senses that Singh would have liked O'Brien to be cast in the Well of the Saints across the river, but of course that was an impossibility. James O'Brien created Daniel Hay in A True Sum of Erin, Hogan the Rapparee in Sarsfield, Patsy Dugan in The Old Land, Thady McGrath in Lord Edward, and many others. This is Iron Ireland. He was known among his colleagues as Harry, uh, so Iron must have been a stage name. For Kennedy Miller, he created the parts of Squire O'Hanlon in The Old Land, Captain McMurrah in The Sham Squire, Captain Ellis in The Ulster Hero, General Talmash in Sarsfield, and he also appeared in strong supporting roles in revivals of other plays, generally as officers or members of the landed gentry. After Kennedy Miller's death in 1906, he and James O'Brien formed their own company called the O'Brien-Ireland Combination. Among the very young members of their company were Annie McMaster and Cyril Cusack. H. Somerville Arnold was an English actor recruited by Kennedy Miller to play smart young gentlemen and romantic heroes. Here he is as Phil Hennessy in The Nationalist, the landlord who sympathises with the movement for agrarian reform. He played the lead in the Victoria Cross. He was Hardress Cregan in the colleen Bourne, Beamish McCool in Aram-Napogue, and Captain Molyneux, as you might expect, in the Chocran. He died shortly after this picture was taken. The obituarist in The Playgoer stated that his greatest triumph was as Lord Edward Fitzgerald, and that he had been in constant ill health, which he had managed to overcome several times always returning to the stage. Thus ended the life of one of the most promising actors we have ever met. It's terribly sad. Next we have Annie Hilton. She tended to be cast in the straight roles. She created Eileen O'Moore in A True Son of Erin, Kate Carney in The Irishman, Mary Doyle in The Insurgent Chief, and Lady Rose de in Sarsfield. Frank Fay, when theatre critic for the United Irishman, said that he preferred her Anne Shute in The Colleen Bourne to her Fanny Power in Arana Pogue, but he didn't bother to tell us why, which was rather remiss of him, I think. Here is Monica Kelly. She usually excelled as spirited peasants and outspoken ladies' maids. She created Kitty Malone in Lord Edward, Peggy Ryan in Wolf Tone and Eily Blake in Sarsfield and several other vivacious servant parts so similar one wonders how she managed not to confuse the lines. <laughs> According to an anonymous columnist in the Playgoer, her style is very natural and she can be pathetic or humorous as occasion demands – her lovemaking is always racially droll and mirth-provoking. <laughs> Whatever racially droll lovemaking may be. Monica Kelly was Moyer in the Chakran, of which Singh wrote so appreciatively. As you might expect, she also played Ailee O'Connor in The Colin Bourne and the title role in Aram Napogue. Mrs. Glenville was the third in the trio of Irish actors, tantalisingly briefly noticed by Singh, in The Chochran, in which she played the mammy Mrs. O'Kelly. She seems to have been with Kennedy Miller for his entire period as director of Irish plays on tour, that is 17 years. She created... The Widow Maloney in the Old Land, which Joseph Holloway described as a real gem of a performance. She is a genuine Irish humorist, and her sayings and doings seem to be nature itself. She had already played the very similar part of Malshi in Kennedy Miller's revival of Edmund Faulkner's extravaganza Peep of Day, which had been a continuing hit in London since it first came out in 1863 at Covent Garden. I've included this photograph, even though it's unnamed, because it's such a striking image. My guess is that it's either Maud Tremaine as Lady Rose in Sarsfield, or... Clara Russell as Kate Maynard in the Victoria Cross. I don't know which lady I'm insulting. The carved chair in the photographic studio keeps reappearing. This is the only picture I was able to find of the man himself, Kennedy Miller. It's from the Irish Playgoer magazine. You'll agree that his is an unprepossessing face, someone you might pass in the street without remarking. The same might be said of many directors. (laughs) You would hardly imagine that this was the man who selected and directed the large and capable company of Irish players, and not only that, but also organised the complex touring schedule, making sure that this year's visits to 30 cities did not repeat plays seen there last year or even the year before, and seeing that the actors were well rehearsed before their opening in unfamiliar houses. Here is the Queen's Theatre poster for a revival of Theobald Wolf Tone in nineteen hundred and one, with Frank Breen billed as the villainous Rafferty a spy and Tyrone Power as Tone's garrulous manservant MacMahon is significant that billing is given to the comic characters and not to the actor who played Wolf Tone. Mm -hmm. Incidentally, the Tyrone Power here was the nephew of the actor-playwright of the same name who was so popular on the London and New York stage. Confusingly, a third Tyrone Power was a Hollywood actor in the mid-20th century. The director, Tyrone Guthrie, was a great-grandson of the first Tyrone Power. This is an advertisement for a performance of Lord Edward by Kennedy Kennedy Miller's powerful Irish combination at the Metropole Theatre Glasgow in 1898, depicting the vivid scenes, episodes and vicissitudes in the life of Lord Edward Fitzgerald, an entirely adequate description. The orchestra, as well as supplying incidental music in the play, entertained the audience in intervals with selections from Donizetti, Soupe, and E. Strauss. E. Strauss? Who is E. Strauss, I wonder? Do you think it's a, a misprint for J? This was a week-long run. But in some cities of smaller population, the programme was changed nightly so that you might see Lord Edward on the Monday, Saturday and Saturday matinee, the green bushes on Tuesday and Thursday, the Colleen Bourne on Wednesday and Friday. You can imagine the amount of effort needed to alternate the stage settings and to travel them leading players were allowed an annual benefit performance in a favorite role from which the profits went entirely to that performer kennedy miller was not an actor so he did not appear on in his benefit which was made up of a play supplied by members of his own company and as his name became more and more celebrated in the profession, actors, singers, and musicians from companies in town that week gave their services in a kind of enormous variety show. In this one, on February the 3rd, 1903, his own players gave the main item to Roan Power I's Sheridanesque Born to Good Luck. It was a very long evening, as the Telegraph reported next day, with 16 supporting items. The ones I would like to have seen were Curtis, Leo and Noblesse mystifying illusionists and the Gibson Henry celebrated comedy cyclists. Not to speak of the Mrs Kinsella and Gorm Irish jig dancers. No doubt precursors of Miss Lily Comerford. The Edison Pictures is an announcement for next week. Of the contributions of so many participating artists, the Evening Telegraph continued... It shows the high appreciation in which Mr. Kennedy Miller is held in the profession. Mr. Miller has been willing at all times to give the benefit of his time, labor, and experience gratuitously to those anxious to serve laudable, charitable, and popular objects in this city." To revert for a moment to J.M. Singh, I think it's significant that he picked out for praise three comic actors from the company when writing of Kennedy Miller's Chakran. Judging from other reviews, the preponderance of actors in the company who possessed a highly developed sense of comedy is very striking. I think it's not at all far-fetched to suggest that in melodrama, where the actors constantly address the audience, even, where necessary, surreptitiously gesturing their feelings about other characters or about the situation itself, a sense of comic irony about the very nature of the play is manifest and an actor's ability to convey their subliminal thoughts without upsetting the balance of credibility would have been a godsend. Nor, I think, is it far-fetched to add, incidentally, that all the truly great Irish actors of the 20th century possessed this inner sense of the comic. Barry Fitzgerald, F.J. McCormick, Maureen Delaney, Mary Keane, Cyril Cusack, Donal McCann. Yes, they certainly excelled in many grave and unsmiling roles, but an underlying sense of fun, wicked fun at times, often lent a touching dimension. Frank Fay wrote in the United Irishman that Mr. Kennedy Miller's company is too good for Mr. Whitbread's pieces. This all-too-brief evaluation is fascinating from it we gather that Miller was responsible for achieving exactly what one of the chief jobs of a director surely is making the audience suppose that the weak play they are observing is something else through judicious casting attractive design striking choreography variation of mood and pace and sheer comprehension of stagecraft but, when the director has the advantage of a first-class script, as in the Irish melodramas Abusico, or in Powers' outrageous farce born to good luck, clearly Kennedy Miller's work moved into a higher plane. In 1905, Kennedy Miller was stated to be in failing health, and so he took a three-month sea voyage on his doctor's recommendation. He died at his home, One Vel- Belvedere Avenue, North Circular Road, on March the first, nineteen hundred and six. Only a week after his annual benefit presentation, he was buried in Saint George's Cemetery, Drumcondra when the chief mourners were Mrs. Kennedy Miller, his daughter, Miss Kathleen Miller, and his friend, the actor, Mr. Dane Clark. There were representatives from the Queen's and Gaiety Theatres. The impression is of a small attendance, and one wonders why. Certainly, he was a man who did not court publicity for himself this can be seen from the posters with the exception of those advertising his annual benefit where the actors and author are generally given much greater prominence than the director certainly jay or andrew kennedy miller soon joined the legions of the forgotten this happens to theater directors unless they've worked in film or have published influential books who, among today's jeunesse d'orée of the theatre, knows anything of Hilton Edwards. And were it not for the great theatre in Minneapolis that is named after him, Tyrone Guthrie would hardly be remembered outside the profession. Once the curtain falls, what has been created on the stage vanishes forever. That is why it is a real honour for me to be given this opportunity by the Dublin City Library and Archives in the presence of the Lord Mayor of Dublin of recalling to mind the forgotten director and some of the forgotten actors who entertained my grandparents and your (laughs) great-grandparents. My Dublin grandmother used to refer to the Queen's Theatre as the place where you saw the real Irish plays. Thank you for your attention to the story of Mr J. Kennedy Miller and his very capable company of Irish players. Thank you for listening to the Dublin City Public Libraries and Archive podcast. To hear more, please subscribe on iTunes or Soundcloud. You can also visit our website, dublincitypubliclibraries.ie and follow us on Facebook and Twitter.